Episode 41, Harnessing Your Past to Create Your Future with Jeanette Schneider. My name is Dan Mason. In 2012, I was overweight, getting divorced, battling depression, and feeling trapped in a career where I was successful, but bored and unfulfilled. And it's actually the greatest gift I've ever been given. I use my pain as a springboard to discover my life's purpose. Now, I want to share the same tools and strategies which help transform my life with you so you can live life amplified. Thomas Jefferson once famously said, I like the dreams of the future better than the history of the past. Great in theory, but if you've ever been on a personal growth path or done self-help work, you know one of the big roadblocks that gets in the way of creating the future that you want are mostly the stories and interpretations you have about the past. How do we get over that? Today's guest is going to give us a roadmap. Jeanette Schneider is the founder of Laura Advocacy, a network of professional women whose goal it is to inspire women to change the world through a gender lens of equality, self-actualization, and the fearless shattering of glass ceilings. Her new book, Lore, Harnessing Your Past to Create Your Future, is in stores right now. Lore challenges women to uncover the stories that have shaped their paths and to actively create new conversations with themselves, their daughters, and everyone around them. And although Jeanette is writing this book for women, I can tell you for my male listeners, a lot of the exercises in the book were useful for me as well. I think it's something that can really open up a conversation to deeper self-acceptance and self-healing for anybody. So some of the topics Jeanette and I covered during this interview are how the messages we receive from parents in our community growing up can keep us stuck as adults. Why being aware of the messages you tell yourself can help you be a more present parent and help your kids develop a healthier self-image. The importance of being clear about what you believe versus what you were raised to believe. How tapping into the signals your body and heart give you can guide you to better decisions, how harnessing your past can help you push forward to the life you want to live, the words of wisdom she got from people on their deathbed that taught her about living life today, and we'll discuss her technique about writing love letters to yourself as a means of healing the past and stepping powerfully into your purpose. If you love the interview today, be sure to let Jeanette and I know you're listening. You can screenshot the podcast, upload it to Instagram and Twitter. You can tag me at CSC Dan Mason. You can tag her at Jeanette Schneider. And if you really love the content, don't forget to give us a follow here on the iHeartRadio app or click subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Today, we're going to harness our past and create our future with Jeanette Schneider. Jeanette Schneider, welcome to Life Amplified. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. So excited. I just had a chance to look through your book, Lore, Harnessing Your Past to Create Your Future over the weekend. It's an amazing read. When we talk about harnessing our past and building a different relationship with the past in order to create the future we want, it's almost like the exact opposite of how most of us live. I think most of my life, I was trying to run as far away from the past as I could or try to out-success the past. Other people might try to out-drink, out-party, out-social media like their past. But tell me why this is so important for people to truly make peace with what was so that they can move forward in their life and build what is next. I truly believe that we have to kind of meet the past and greet it, think it, roll it around in our fingers and kind of understand it because it will continue to show up no matter what you're doing. So you could be trying to achieve a wonderful level of success or write a book or go after a specific position. And then once you get that, you might be dealing with 
feelings of self-worth or I don't belong here or imposter syndrome. Mm. It's almost like the messages that we receive as kids and through our life, whether it's from our parents or uh, cultural advertising, social messages, whatever it may be, they pop back up as we're moving through various aspects of our life. And I think that was a huge aha moment as this project really got started. When I think about my personal growth journey, realizing that your beliefs aren't absolute truth. And you write about that in the book. I I highlighted this passage. You said most of what you believe about yourself and your worldview has been handed to you via generational social and cultural messaging. These beliefs are a timeless hum that make up your person. Here's the catch. They will color the world of your children unless you pull that messaging out of you. So I was wondering if you could speak about as you've gone through and done this work, what are the things that you had believed about yourself that you realized were gifted to you, you know, by people who didn't know better. And I'm curious too, as a mom, how you've tried to combat passing that on to your daughter. I think my daughter was the one who made me realize it was as she was asking me questions and creating her own worldview um, that I had to consciously kind of take a step back because she started coming home from school and saying, you know, mom, is it true that a boy hits you when he likes you? Is it true that sticks and stones can break my bones, but words will never hurt me? And these small little cliched things. And I started kind of thinking about it. You know, she had all of these questions. And I had this kind of, if you would just vomit up what your parents told you, I don't actually believe any of it. I don't believe much of the kind of the religious background that I was was raised to believe was true. And I had to really consciously put together her messaging. One of the most beautiful things that came about, about from this process was when I actually wrote my own love letter to my younger self, the very first sentence that hit the page was, you will spend most of your life believing you are unlovable. And it really just knocked the air out of me because I really scanned my past and realized I was walking into relationships saying, hi, I'm unlovable. Give me what you will. And I was allowing myself to show up and just accept the scraps that were meted out to me by the people that would show up in my life, whether that was in romantic relationships at work and what have you. And as I started constructing this messaging for my daughter, it was the last thing I wanted her to believe. The thing that's been fantastic, you know, in doing this very purposeful work is that I'm creating very specific messaging for my daughter. We have conversations before bed where we, in our prayers, talk about the things we're grateful for and what we need help with. So we can talk about feelings, emotions. Um, we talk about kind of social structures and how things feel in your, your belly or in your gut, how things feel in your heart so that she can start to really understand the world and create her own worldview. And one of the best things that happened was one day we were talking about our superpowers. And she said that if she had a superpower, her name would be Love Alive because she is so lovable. Her name's Olivia. <laughs> and I loved that because in that moment, I knew I had ended that messaging that I had received that I was unlovable because here my child is walking out into the world with this personal power and confidence knowing how lovable she is. That's such a beautiful story. And I love the fact that you shared that. It's so hard. I see this when coaching clients and I'm sure you see this when you're hosting your workshops that so often we just, you know, those beliefs that we have, the self-limiting beliefs, we accept them as truth more often than not. For your daughter, or even really just for you, how do you start to delineate? Because you mentioned that, that you, you reached a point where you rejected some of the old uh, thinking that you came up with in your religion and your thought systems. But how does somebody really get clear on what is it I believe versus what I was raised to believe? 
That's such a great question. I spent over a decade working on that. I was jealous of people that had faith and had very clear understandings because once I realized that I didn't know the difference between what had been told to me and what I actually believed, I had to do some serious digging. And it was internal work. It's not, you can't look out to the world around you to inform your worldviews. You really have to get clear and quiet with yourself. And what makes me feel good? What do I believe? What's important to me? There was a lot of reading. There was a lot of workshops. There was a lot of journaling and free writing. I love The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. It's really a creative unblocking process to understand. It's almost like you're having a conversation with your soul to get very clear on what has been told to you and what actually rings true for you. As I said, it took me over a decade to get really clear as to what is it that I believe and I want to stand in and advocate for, because that's another thing too. Sometimes when we realize our messaging is different than what we were raised to believe, we then have to make a decision. Are we going to kind of ground ourselves in this and is this gonna create any conflicts with our family as well? So it's, it's definitely a journey, but I think it's one worth taking when you look at the next generation and how it's so important for us to help them kind of create their own self-talk that has nothing to do with just cultural programming and messages that should probably die generation to generation. You hit on two important things that stand out to me. Number one, it's a journey. Most of us are looking for the quick fix, you know, whether that be a prescription, a pill, you know, the aha moment that's going to change everything, but it really is a journey. And it's also because I feel like the process is ultimately what leads you to that dark night of the soul. Because if you're starting to realize all these things you believed about yourself aren't really who you are, but you haven't figured out what that next thing, what that truth is about you, that's really where people have the meltdown. It's like, well, who the hell am I and what am I doing here? Did you have a moment like that? Because your background, you know, vice president in the finance world, you were, you know, everything that we hear about in the age of girl boss hashtags. And I mean, you're crushing it in your career. But what was that moment for you where you had to figure out that deeper wisdom, that deeper truth within you? For me personally, it was having my daughter. When I came back from maternity leave, I'm in sales and I have ultra fluent client base. And one of the first things one of our sales executives said to me was, how are you going to make up the revenue the firm lost while you were gone? And in my mind, I'm like, I just made a person, you know, that was, that was one of those clarifying moments where I realized one, I'm only seen for my gender. And two, I have to change the way the the marketplace and the world looks before my daughter gets here. Mm. That was one of those things where it was like, I have to create really strong messaging because I don't want to, her to think that this type of conversation when she enters the workforce is okay. And so it almost is like I was becoming a, a much better and more conscientious parent in that moment. But I also, it created a an activism within me because I wanted it to be better for all of her friends too. <laughs> that was one of those clarifying moments where I knew I had to really, I had to dig in my, my heels and, and make things different. One of the major themes in the book that you talk about in lore is forgiveness. And you write in the book, you came into this life alone and you'll leave alone. So why carry the burden of another throughout the span of that time? And there always seems like there's a debate when I talk to people on the podcast, depending on what world you come from. There's, you know, the people who are a little bit more spiritual and woo-woo. And then there's the medical perspective. The spiritual world insists that you have to forgive to release yourself from the past, that it's not about the other person. And sometimes when I talk to people on the medical side, they say, well, not so fast. There's a natural evolution to it. And if you forgive just for the 
sake of forgiving, without feeling the emotions, you're just going to set yourself up for more pain down the road. I'm wondering about the process as you've seen in holding these workshops, because you have held space for people through some of their deepest, darkest traumas, things that they've held on to for decades and in cases a lifetime. What have you learned about forgiveness and why is it so important for people to move forward into their purpose and into their highest vision for their life? There's something almost freeing about the act of forgiveness. And one of the other things I find is that in my workshops, when I specifically talk about forgiving ourselves, that's where the tears come. It's really fascinating because I don't know that there's a wrong way to forgive. I understand that there's going to be experts on either side of the argument that, you know, pray and let it go. And I think sometimes let it go is easier said than done. I think we almost kind of put this viewpoint on let it go like it's just something that's easily done. I truly believe you have to feel and process your emotions. You have to call them out and say that they are, I am feeling sad today. I am angry with this person today. I forgive them even if you don't believe it, but process the feelings. Understand why you feel so angry and, and then provide space for them to move on when it's time. And I don't think you can go after any specific situation with the same practice. I've had in my own experience where it's every morning, you know, I had a heartbreak and I was devastated and this person was on my mind constantly. And it was every morning it was, I, I forgive you. I will allow this to, to move on. And over time, I just, I'd stopped thinking about him as much. And I know several days would go by and I would forget. And now when I think back on him, I think, fondly of him. But there's been other situations that were far more traumatic and difficult, and they've required conversations with, I have a, an executive coach who's assisted me with a few things. I have a friend who's an intuitive who's helped me. I have a trainer who's held punching bags while I've boxed pain out of me. And I think you have to, to look at the situation and say, get very clear on how am I being triggered by this person or this situation? And sometimes you think that you've already forgiven, a situation will come up and you'll have an unnatural anger and lean into that moment and recognize that you're being told something that maybe there's another layer of forgiveness because that's what I truly believe. I think that there's layers of forgiveness. On the spiritual side, set the intention. On the medical side, feel the feelings. But at some point in time, do the work because if you just allow the person to eat at you, it will affect your relationships on a go-forward basis. And there's, there's no point in that. And when you talk about the idea of forgiving yourself, you know, there are people who are listening to the podcast today who've probably gone through unbelievable trauma. And, you, and you've written about some of these clients in your book, the woman who was, you know, gang raped while uh, serving, I believe, in the Air Force. You've talked about just the various abuse, spousal abuse, things that are just heinous and inexcusable. Somebody out there listening right now is, is going, well, what is there to forgive myself for? I was the victim. How do you process that when you come up with that in a workshop? What I find is is that typically when you're when you're pushing outward and you're pointing outward and you're using the word victim, you're still angry. You're still holding some anger that needs to be processed. So hold yourself gently in that space. Shelley Wolford is the woman who um, experienced severe sexual violence. And when I share what she had to say to her four-year-old self, she looked very clearly and she wrote her letter to her younger self probably 27 times. And she said, it was finally my four-year-old self that I said, it wasn't your fault. Because as much as she knew these men had victimized her, she was looking at this little girl and saying, you feel like you did something that caused this. Because she had had several you know, issues with, with traumatic experiences throughout her life. So whether or not she believed it from a conscious level, 
once she got clear and really started to dig in, she realized somehow she was holding some kind of blame for it or shame for it that yeah. she needed to let go of. And as soon as I said those words, when I was in a conference, a, a workshop one time, and there was 250 women in the room, and someone said, what was the most profound message? And I got goosebumps as I shared those words. And you could feel the air in the room shift. And I received so many messages afterwards. There was a lot of women who had experiences with sexual violence that were in that space that needed to hear those very words because it helped them understand a little bit more about themselves. There's also something to, to people sharing their stories because I think also in that sometimes someone else can put words to something we're feeling and we just don't have the words for it. You mentioned these love letters to self and that is a big part of the book and a big part of your work when you're out doing your workshops. It seems on the surface like it should be a simple process, right? That you can write a letter loving yourself, just sort of accepting yourself as you are. But I imagine there's a fair amount of resistance from people when they come up against it. Talk about why these letters are so powerful. And maybe even on your end, while even as you were teaching this concept to other people, you had not really done that process for yourself. You were being challenged by some of your clients to go through and write your own love letter. It's a kind of an accidental project. The whole idea was I had such great access to some amazing women and I knew some of their internal struggles and I said, hey, wouldn't it be great if we could like virally mentor other people and just like write a love letter to these women of your younger selves about the things that you've gone through so that they can see themselves in you as well. And it was the women as they started writing the letters and sending them to me that were like, oh my God, Jeanette, this was hard. This was so hard. So I didn't realize the therapeutic value until I started sitting down and doing interviews with them and downloading and be like, and, and saying, tell me, tell me about the process. And that's when they turned around and said, you have to do it. So I did. And there was resistance. And I have to share with you, I talk a lot about women, but this is really fascinating. My, my brand manager, a man, most of my um, team, are men. And he actually did the love letter as the women were sending everything in. He said, you know, I'm going to do this. I want to see what it's about. We sat down one day. He was in Vegas for a filming that we were doing. And his story is actually in the book. At the time, um, we changed his name and made him a woman because he was very uncomfortable because he was just starting to come into this story. His father had attempted to commit suicide multiple times when he was a child. And as he was reminiscing about his life, he realized that he had this iron will, he was cool under pressure, he was considered unflappable. And the first line of his love letter to his younger self is, it's okay to come out of the car. And he had realized that he locked everyone out, locked out all emotions, but he'd also locked out love. And I actually was just talking to him this weekend, and he said this journey since he wrote this letter now a year ago has been amazing for him because he started to realize that he can start letting some of those things go. He and his sister met in Ohio for a 20th year reunion, went back to the home where all of these things happened and talked about the trauma they both experienced. His showed up in a way that he held love out and was cool under pressure and hers was serious insecurity. And he's so excited because like, I'm starting to open up to where I feel feelings and I walk into a room and I can, there's joy coming into his life and empathy that the love letter unlocked, but he had to be willing to go through the dark part. And I think that's the one thing that as people are reading the book, I had a gentleman actually reach out to me and two women over the course of the past week and they said, this is really hard. I said, it's hard because it needs to be done. But once you get past the hard part, the rest is aspirational and inspirational. Just get past the hard part. And I know it's, it's difficult, but there's so much bliss on the other side of it. 
that it's worth doing the work. As I read the book over the weekend, I sat down and started on my own letter to myself. It's interesting for me as a coach because I would say, you know, if I look at the last three years of coaching, 80% of my clients have been women. But there's an interesting shift happening over the last three to four months where now I have such a higher volume of men looking to do this work. And I'm not sure what that shift is. I don't know if it's that we're redefining what masculinity is right now because of the Me Too movement. I don't know if that's what spurred it on, but I've been a student of this. Obviously, uh, you and I have you know, had one of the same mentors in the past, but it was really fascinating for me to get into this letter and some of the beliefs that I had about myself because what I realized is, is I was writing this letter to six-year-old me. I was sort of prepping him for the fact that he's going to spend most of his life feeling alone, out of place, and as if he doesn't belong. And what I realized over the course of that is that it wasn't really that little kid's fault. He was raised by people around him to want a life that wouldn't really feel good to him the older he got. And it was fascinating. I mean, I think for me, one of the things I realized when I was in sixth grade, my mom was having an inappropriate relationship of some time. I don't know if it was a physical affair, but it was definitely an emotional affair with uh, some guy who played bass guitar in a band that my uncle managed in Houston. And like every bad stereotype, by the way, that you would think of like an 80s hair band, think like, you know, Adam Sandler and the Wedding Singer. This guy was over at our house all all the time. And when we moved away to Maryland as a family, my mom had to end that relationship. And God, this is really emotional for me to talk about. But I think that this was probably a guy that made my mom feel safe. And I don't know the nature of their relationship, but I know when we moved to Maryland, my mom really leaned into me to almost turn me into this other guy. I remember going and her making me get a mullet for a haircut, which you can imagine was super attractive in seventh grade and set me up for a lot of success socially. Um, <laughs> so bad, right? Like I was back visiting my dad and he had some of my old yearbooks from junior high. He's like, Daniel, do you want these? I'm like, absolutely not. You burn that shit. <laughs> <laughs> but then for Christmas that year, without me asking for it, because I never really wanted to play in a rock band, my mom also went and bought me a bass guitar. And it was almost not like in a creepy, like Oedipus sexual way. It was none of that. But it was almost like she was trying to morph me into this guy that made her feel safe. And... All I wanted to do in seventh and eighth grade was shoot basketball and be in the drama club. Like, I was a theater nerd. You know, I wasn't going to make a very good bassist with a mullet and a hair metal band. But within all that, there was sort of this feeling of not feeling like I was enough, not feeling like I fit in. And I carried that for so much of my life. And that's one of the things that really came forward for me in that letter. It's interesting how just like those small, seemingly insignificant memories that you excavate that were just a brief moment in time can really lead to so much, you know, to lead to sort of a hardening or a rejection of yourself later on. Absolutely. I had a, a very difficult conversation with my dad because there were some things that came up in the way he would kind of respond to other men when they when I became a teenager and I was getting hit on and it was instead of saying this man is being inappropriate it was cover yourself self up even though I was being modest and in my mind that meant that I was causing men to do bad things 
just like you were saying, sometimes our parents have no idea that just by the small little things that they're doing from their own messaging and their own way of relating to the world, we're receiving messages. And what a beautiful thing for you to share that with me today, because it's, it's these little nuggets, right? It's these little things. And all of a sudden you can look over the course of your life and say, oh my gosh, this has created a, almost a thought process for me. It's, it's colored in some ways so many of my interactions. You also talk in this book about making choices from your deathbed, which sounds morbid, right? <laughs> but you also set this up beautifully in the introduction because you've had the privilege, and I do, I, I would consider it to be a privilege, to have conversations with people on their deathbed when they're getting ready to transition. What impacted you from having those conversations? What did you realize is truly important to people in those final moments before they're leaving their body? And why is it important to bring that mindset into your life today? I have to tell you the biggest blessing I have ever received in life is being with, there's been three people in my life that I talk about that I was with right before they passed. And it's amazing how they each wanted to have a very specific moment with me to tell me something. And the moments were so beautiful because everything that you believed about your life no longer matters. The way your religion, the way you raised your kid, who hated who, who had an affair, you get very, very clear on who you love and what you want them to know. And I just feel so blessed that each of these individuals had to say something to me. With my grandmother, and it's, it's the reason the book is called Lore, she said to me, in life, don't worry about the big things. They will figure themselves out. You have to worry about the little things. Love each other every day. And I really looked at that lore, that folklore, that generational passing down of knowledge as being so incredibly beautiful. My grandfather you know, completely changed the way he saw religion at the end of his life. Hmm. And another woman who struggled with wanting to provide and materialism and building huge companies realized at the end of the day, do you know who was next to him at his bedside was his financial advisor, me. I'm, I'm the trustee and his kids aren't there. Do you know what I mean? Wow. And it was like, he goes, make sure that the people who you love during life are the people who are around you at your death. He loves money. His advisor is next to him in death. It was these beautiful moments where people got very clear. The reason I talk about planning from your deathbed is because I feel like at the end, you get this moment of clarity where you get to look over your life and say, what was really important to me? You have 70 to 100 years, depending on how well you take care of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. And in that period of time, are you really going to be upset that you didn't spend a little money on yourself or that you didn't take that extra class or you didn't tell that person you love them or you held that grudge? Does that really matter? And so a lot of times when I have a big decision to make, I will have a conversation with deathbed me. It's almost like we're looking at each other and she's very sassy and she puts me <laughs> and she's like, get over yourself. Like you think you've seen a lot. You've seen nothing. Do the things you want to do because I don't want to lay in this bed and not have had a great life. I want to look at the sad eyes around me and tell them, you don't worry. I'm good. I'm happy. I've lived a good life. I can't wait to see what happens next. Really want to be in that spot. And one of the other tools that you talk about in this book is the gut check method. So, you know, there's conversations with deathbed you, but there's also just trying to tap into your intuition. Very difficult because most of us want to rationally think our way through a problem, which usually doesn't end well. How can somebody really tap into that intuitive voice if they're facing a major decision in their life? I think 
your body tells you so much. I and mean, it's really, I think people are starting to move into a space where they're getting comfortable with listening to their bodies, recognizing stress creates heart issues, health issues, what have you. But your body gives you signals every day. We just need to learn how to tap into them. So when you get a text message from someone and you're like, ugh, you feel your shoulders slump in if someone walks in the room or you cross your arms in front of you, just start paying attention to yourself. When it comes to big decisions, have conversations with your own body and really kind of give yourself time. I think we try to rationalize, but a lot of times we have this little voice in the back of our head that is like, I don't know about this, or this is great. And the, the, the money side of us or the rational side of us is like, yeah, but be careful. And I think that's why a lot of people don't walk away from careers that are soul-sucking. They're like, oh, but I need the money, I need the retirement, because I've been taught that buying a house is the American dream, and I have been taught that having a retirement plan, but my passion is over here, or the thing I love to talk about is over here. We rationalize our way out of our hearts, and I think it's moving from head to heart. I actually have an executive coach right now who's amazing, and he said, Jeanette, you spend so many years in your head, and you've built an amazing career, it's time to start moving into your heart because now you can trust your experience and let your heart lead because you're going to make very good decisions. I think it's just a matter of practice. People have to get used to paying attention to their body, their heart, their intuition. And like anything, like even the forgiveness practice, you have to practice at it. You just have to start paying attention. You talked earlier about coming back from maternity leave at mm-hmm. your sales job and realized that, you know, that there were certain prejudices that you were facing just because of your gender. And as we look right now at everything happening in the news with certainly the extreme cases like the Harvey Weinsteins of the world and the people like that, what is the best way in your mind for men and women to rise up together to step into this next level of leadership. I know we talk a lot about, you know, the existing patriarchy that was, and now we're seeing women rise up. What is the best way for us to coexist and for men and women to thrive together side by side moving forward? So I actually just read the little um, clip um, of Sean Penn talking about how he felt that this is kind of dividing men and women, and I don't agree. And the reason I don't agree is because I am in a male-dominated field. I'm typically the only woman in a room very, very powerful men. And since the Me Too movement has started, I have seen the men around me at the table start to call each other out. And I'm so proud of them. And it's not even like they're, you know, giving each other, you know, a hard time or running to HR, but it's like someone will say something and another guy will stop and say, hey, hashtag Me Too, stop. And I'm so proud of them. I think it's calling out the behaviors and looking at the women in the room around you as your allies and people that are to be loved and trusted and cared for. The women aren't doing this to stop men. It's it's finding a way for us to normalize things that have happened so that it doesn't continue to happen. Um, unfortunately, I can absolutely say me too on multiple occasions and in multiple levels. And I'm so proud that this is here because I think it's it's allowing women to kind of say, hey, that happened to me too. Yeah, that's not right. And I want to make sure that the next generation that's coming into the workplace or going into the film industry or whatever that may be, they feel safer. But that also means that the men, rather than feeling afraid of women, that they can be an ally and an advocate and stand up and say, hey, man, I heard what you said. Not cool. Or even just that, hey, hey man, hashtag me too. Hashtag Harvey Weinstein. They get it. They stop. I'm so proud of, of the guys that I'm watching step forward and not having to, to wave a flag or even call themselves a feminist if they're uncomfortable with it. But just kind of looking at each other and being like, not cool, dude. Not cool. Love it. 
the book is Lore. It is available right now. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. I'm curious, anything else that you want to share with the audience today? What is like the biggest truth that you've learned over the course of putting this book together through the process of writing it that you think would impact people listening today? What I've learned from this, and I actually was just at Mount St. Mary's University over the weekend um, talking to you there. And one of the conversations we had, and one of the things I I felt so strongly about leaving them with is, you are so powerful. We are so powerful, and we have the ability to create the life we want, the paradigms we want, the relationships we want. And unfortunately, we allow stories and memories to hold our power. And I just would love for people to walk away from this and realize, yes, the work is hard, the work is dirty, but you have the power within you to see the other side of it. And so when you feel resistance, lean into that because that's the other side pulling you forward. Love it. Thank you so much for your time today. Really enjoyed reading the book. I think my listeners are going to get a lot out of it and uh, wish you all the best moving forward. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me today. One of my big takeaways in that interview is just how so many of the self-limiting beliefs and the negative talk that we carry seem to be passed down generationally. It's like we inherit our parents' trauma and beliefs. And I think Jeanette's book is an amazing tool to help you unravel that and get to the truth of who you are. Really enjoyed that interview. I hope you did too. If so, let us know you're listening. You can screenshot the podcast, upload it to Instagram and Twitter, tag me at CSC Dan Mason, and you can tag Jeanette at Jeanette Schneider. Plus, we do have a link to her book, Lore, Harnessing Your Past to Create Your Future. You can find that in the show notes. Don't forget, you can always share this podcast with a friend if the content is serving you. And those five-star ratings and reviews up on Apple really help us with the algorithm and help us get this message out there to more people. Thank you so much for listening today. If you're looking for a coach or mentor to help you break through to find more fulfillment, purpose, and confidence in every aspect of your life. You can find out about how to work with me at my website, creativesoulcoaching.net. You can get on the waiting list for my October coaching openings. All the details are on my website. And in the meantime, turn down the volume on your negativity, turn up the volume on your purpose so you can get out there and live life amplified. I love you so much for listening. We'll talk next time.